Master Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's episode is one I get really fired up about. We're talking all about gears, part three of our elk hunting crash course. If you listen to this, you'll have a great idea of the things that really matter and what you need for this upcoming season, all in a single, super compressed hour. All right. Yes, sir. Getting to so, it. Gear. So oh. much, so much to cover today. Gear. Uh, I think this is a good one for folks that listen to the series and folks that are experienced hunters and folks that are new hunters. They're just like this giant, giant list of elk hunting gear. And there's so much crud and junk to wade through. And I, I think this is just a great episode to like do the check over of do you have everything you need this year? Uh, what really matters, right? Where should you put your money? Yeah, this will be really condensed. We're going to hit a lot of things. So hopefully you have your uh, computer by and Amazon pulled up. <laughs> you can just start adding things to the cart. But we're going to go over first just a huge like gear hunting checklist, like what you actually need, when to buy it. Then we'll cover arrows and broadheads, just like the main points. Then we're going to cover key things for your boots, your tent, sleeping bag. And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about food. So really covering the full gamut here. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's yeah, there's the one episode podcast and the article online about like a giant list of everything you need. So if that's what you're looking for. You can go there. Really why we chose those things is they're the things that um, are the most expensive, heavy, or important. It's kind of a combination of all three of those. Like for example, we're not covering bows because you have any good bow that's tuned well, keyword tuned well, <laughs> it's going to work, right? If you can shoot it well and it's tuned well, it doesn't really matter what brand or whatever. Um, this is why we're not sponsored by bow companies or anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we also did a clothing episode like a month or two ago. So you can go back and look at that because I do think that's worth a whole one on itself, um, especially for folks that aren't used to like layering and um, mountain alpinism type clothing. So that's a good one. But yeah, so we'll just kind of hit the high stuff, um, the big things and uh, roll from there. How's that sound? Yes, sir. And then a uh, quick note, I, for each of these topics, there are deep dive blog posts and some have dedicated episodes from last year, earlier this year. So I'll link them all in the description below um, in the episode itself. So if you want to dive deeper on one specific thing, you'll have access to that. We're just going to cover the main headlines. Oh, interesting. But, uh, we got nerdy. <laughs> we got real deep. Yeah. But yeah, yeah this is Baxter specialty. So I love this stuff. Um, uh, well, maybe we start. I mean, there's an article on the website about like what you really need and what you don't need. I'm I'm just gonna blow through that one because you know, I think there's things guys really shouldn't bring. Day packs, you know, battery chargers, extra shoes, extra clothes in your backpack. Remember last year you were like, <laughs> I don't believe you. And now you don't even bring your extra pair of underwear. Yep. Uh, we talked all about that. You know, no hatchet or bone saw, you know, gators, spotting scopes. There's things that just save guys a lot of stuff. You save a lot of money and weight, right? Mm -hmm. And then I talk a lot about like things that don't really work for all cunning from other areas, game bags, your boots for you know, both sides of that, a third axis, deer arrows and broadheads. Yada, yada, yada. So I'm just running through that list. So there's a bunch of stuff to avoid and not to do. Go look at that if you want that bit. But maybe we just jump right into the arrow. Because I feel like of all the gear pieces in elk hunting, the number one like, gear piece that I believe um, 
as far as archery goes that you need to really focus on is your arrow and that includes the broadhead totally and uh i remember we talked about the building arrows episode there are so many things we go over like critical factors we go over what's less important what's not important maybe today we just touch on the critical stuff yeah like everything from you know we did like front of center and why it doesn't really matter to like three versus four fletching we did a whole podcast on that earlier this year actually on three versus four fletch Mm -hmm. um you know, why straightness is as important in spine, your weight tolerance, how quiet the arrow is, why color doesn't really matter if you're not using green, uh, you know, some other things like that. But I think the most important thing on the arrow is weight. Uh, and this is something that I used to think was just kind of an opinion. I don't believe that's an opinion anymore. I, I think it's a mandatory, absolute and utter mandatory if you're hunting elk is to have a heavy arrow. Um, the reason, I mean, there's a tons of benefits. Your bow is far more efficient. It actually raises the IBO of your bow. We can talk about that in a second. So it makes your bow more effective, makes your bow quieter. It penetrates so much better than a light arrow going fast. It's unbelievable if you use them side by side. Two days ago, I was down in the garage doing typical me things. And I had a 400 grain arrow, a 450 grain arrow, 500 and a 550. So I'm messing with my setup. I'm currently shooting 550s. And, uh, it was mind-blowing. You actually didn't get that much faster going down to 400. Like You lost efficiency, and it just didn't go into the target. I mean, it's... Anyway, I won't go on the long rant, but long story short, get the heavy arrow. The way I'm talking to folks about elk arrows day in and day out is around grains per pound of draw weight. So if you are you know, shooting 60 pounds and you have a 10-grain per pound of draw weight, that's 600 grains. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. Now that's really excessive. But uh, the range that I love to tell people is seven to 10 grains per pound of draw weight. That is that is sweet elk territory, right? Um, and it's, it's a weird one because you actually use the lower number if you have higher poundage. So if you have a 70 pound draw weight, it's okay to use seven grains per pound of draw weight. Mm-hmm. But if you're my wife and you're shooting 42 pounds, I'm, I'm telling you, you absolutely need to be at 10 grains mm. of, see what I'm saying? So it's an inverse kind of scale. Um, so for me, I shoot about 65 pounds. I'm shooting a 550 grain arrow that gives me, um, it's like 8.3 or something like that. You were shooting a, oh, was it a 450, 460? I think it was about 450 and pulling 56 pounds. So I'm in the eight. Yeah, you're, you're well into the eights. You're even higher than me. So that's the, the appropriate way. As your poundage go down, goes down, you should be going a little higher mm-hmm. um, with that. So that's the reason for that is it gives you, you know, uh, two wounds in and out, right? Every time you're going to get full penetration, which with elk is so much more important than cutting diameter. We'll talk about that in broadheads so getting that weight i just i mean it kills me because i wanted to spend like 30 minutes talking to people through why that's so important but um that's my number one piece so the the other way to look at this too is everyone gets really freaked out about the downside quote unquote of a heavy arrow which is a bad trajectory if you run the numbers it really isn't that much of a difference at distance and i've actually noticed that heavy arrows since they keep momentum they actually have a better trajectory at 100 yards, 60, 80 yards, distances you wouldn't shoot an elk, but you might want to practice at um, than even the calculators say because those little light arrows just zip out of that bow and then instantly slow down. Mm-hmm. It's like they hit a brick wall versus that 
arrow that comes out of your bow that weighs 500 grains is still trucking at 100 yards. It's moving. Right. Um, so anyway, so the other way, so 7 to 10 grains per pound for figuring out your arrow weight. The other way I can say it is what's the heaviest arrow, the heaviest arrow you can build to get in that 260 to 280 feet per second range. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually shoot 252, 255. I really don't don't mind. I still shoot at 100 yards. Uh, actually, the, the distance you can shoot is 100% about the distance from your peep to your knock. That's hmm. what dictates how far you're able to shoot because that gives you the, the distance for the sight to move up or down. Oh, interesting. Sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, not really about arrow weight, uh, which people don't realize. They try to get these ultralight arrows so they can shoot, but it's only going to... Going from a 550-grain arrow to a 400-grain arrow will only get you like 10 more yards, if that. Hmm. Um, so I try to say, get the heaviest stinking arrow you can get that's 260 to 280. You know, why is that? That's not arbitrary. 280 is the point at which fixed blade broadheads start really having difficulty tuning. Oh, um, I've really noticed that in my experience. John Dudley says this. Um, oh, why am I blanking on names? Kafaro Cast, Aaron Snyder says this. Tons of guys. Uh, it's really weird. It's just like something at 280 feet per second starts to make life difficult. So at the max, get something heavy there. 260 is kind of the range at which you start to notice trajectory differences, in my opinion. Again, I don't care. I shoot 250, but again, for most folks, just do that. Got it. Um, And there's basic calculations like three grains per per foot power, (laughs) FPS feet per second. Mm -hmm. So if you're shooting you know, 30 extra grains, you're going to drop 10 feet per second. So that's kind of good ways for guys to estimate that. Um, hopefully we haven't lost anyone at this point. Just build a stinking heavy arrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, I know we can go all day on arrows. So maybe we touch on the next two or the next big components quickly. I know the diameter thing, if I remember correctly, and this, I'm going to quiz myself here is the diameter you generally recommend smaller, the better, because better penetration and better penetration because there's less drag, like through bone and things like that. Totally. Yeah. So there's, this is all marketing. A lot of it's marketing hype, you know, around the, the arrows, but there's really three categories of arrows for guys to simplify. There's, um, the six millimeter, which is 0.246 internal. All arrows are measured by the internal diameter, mm-hmm. the mandrel, the metal thing they get wrapped around. Um, and so arrows have different wall thicknesses. Uh, so I'm not going to overly complicate things, but that's just how they're measured. So there's three categories. There's what most guys would call your standard diameter arrow, 246 or 6 millimeter. What most guys would call your small diameter, which is 5 millimeters or 0.204 internal. And then there's micro diameters, which are the um, 0.165 or 4 millimeter shafts, which you're talking Easton, right? Something like that. So those are the three. The reason I, I recommend 5 or 4 millimeter arrows for most guys, 5. Reason being... The six millimeter or the standard diameter arrows, the width of that shaft is the same width as that broadhead. So as that arrow goes in, your all that energy gets pushed into punching a hole around that metal component of the center of your broadhead. And then that hole is still dragging on this outside of the arrow the entire way through the animal, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of force and you really notice the difference in penetration. Once you go down to five or four millimeter arrows, the tip of the arrow is actually wider diameter than the shaft of the arrow coming behind it. So you punched a hole that then has zero, not zero, but very, very low drag 
um, on the arrow shaft as it goes through because it's you know it's going into the hole that's already been cut. So you've only got so much energy. We've talked about this. Even the gnarliest 80 pound setup has half the energy of a 22 long rifle, a little rim fire pop cap gun, right? Mm-hmm. So you're really, really um, utilizing that energy effectively for penetration. So that's that's it. Everyone will say, oh, they cut the wind better. They do this. Da, 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 da. No, it's just penetration. And so I'm a big advocate of those five millimeter and four millimeter arrows. Um, the thing, the problem with the fours and to most extent, problem with fives too, the Achilles heel of all these arrows, they actually get stronger as they get smaller because there's more carbon, the thicker walls to the arrow. I won't walk through the whole reason there, but the, the components, the inserts, the outserts, where the arrow screws or the arrow broadhead screws into the shaft, that's the weak link of the small arrow, mm-hmm. right? And most importantly, they don't align naturally with the shaft. You have to manually do this. So if guys buy ones off the shelf, you just buy a random one off the shelf, it's going to probably be misaligned, which leads to really bad accuracy, right? So guys will pay crazy money for these 0.001 arrows, but then they've got a broadhead that just wobbles on the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, if you're doing a four millimeter arrow, you're absolutely going to have to uh, spin that broadhead component, whether it's an outsert, it's also always an outsert at that point, uh, to align it with mm-hmm. five millimeter arrows. They're kind of a nice compromise because some of them have half outs like the ones you've got. Some of them like the Easton's has, still have internal ones. You actually don't really need to align those. Like they're, they're only so far out of the tip of the arrow. And let me, let me back up with a standard diameter arrow. If you look at a broadhead or you look at a field point, there's three diameters. There's the tip. Then there's kind of this shank that's not threaded. It's just a straight section. And then there's the threads. And those go from big to medium to small. With a regular diameter arrow, all of that stuff can fit in, or the, sorry, the back two can fit inside the diameter of the shaft. Mm-hmm. So it just goes right in. So the tip just touches the tip of the arrow. And that's why you don't have to worry about alignment issues as much, right? Versus the five millimeter, only the shank, or sorry, only the threads can go in. So the shank has to be supported by something outside the tip of the arrow, and then the threads can go into the arrow shaft. And with a four millimeter, nothing can go in. So you've got to have a metal piece that somehow goes into the arrow shaft and then goes out and the arrow screws into it. So you've got a ton of stuff sticking out the tip of the arrow, which is why uh, there's no problems. Makes yeah, sense. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we're, we're spending a lot of time on those. Basically, if you are not going to manually align the outserts do not get a four millimeter arrow you don't pay the money for that get a five millimeter with a half out or a hit insert um i do like to strengthen them with a footer if you're going to go that way um that's a that's just a good way to do it so heavy arrow five millimeters is a good place for most folks if you're going to build it yourself go for um spine consistency that's the most important thing on an arrow we've talked about carbon gets wrapped yada 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 i'm not going to go down that you can go listen to the arrow episode if you want but that's uh that's the most important thing and unfortunately it's one of the hardest to measure but that's why i've tested a ton of different arrows um and so uh, you have recommendations if guys are looking for arrows i think are stinking awesome Uh, micros you've got easton's um you've got the easton's black eagles and honestly my favorite is the day six because the components are so strong and so good there's a weak link there uh, i'm looking at doing easton's this year but they just don't have that half out it's gonna break it's gonna snap or bend if you have a not a direct hit but an angular hit 
Hmm. Uh, they just don't work. So be really, I'm not as worried about the brand of the shaft when I'm down on a four millimeter arrow. I'm hundred percent worried about the outsert and the strength of that outsert. So the day six ones that come with good ones, uh, the ethics archery components, uh, the outsert system they have, you can buy aftermarket. Um, looks like Nexus has a pretty cool one now. Uh, that's, that's right. Be from there. Five millimeter arrows, the, uh, the Eastern Axis is timeless. I'd probably still buy a footer for that thing just because if you only have that insert, it's possible for it to snap. Josh, you have the rampages, the Black Eagle rampages with the half out, and those have been pretty good for you, right? Yeah, I, I like them a lot. Um, it went through, and mine was pretty heavy, we mentioned earlier. And then with the spine consistency, there's a chart you can look up online, just look up um, arrow spine consistency chart, I think. But uh yeah, worked great. Went straight. Like I shot pretty much the shoulder directly on the shoulder of an axis deer uh, in March, and it went through just all the bone, like through two shoulders, um, which is pretty yeah. cool to see. And you're pulling 54 pounds, right? 52 pounds, something like that. 54 this uh, this last March, yeah. Yeah. So that's just a good. That's such a good illustration of how a heavy arrow works. Like you're not pulling crazy poundage, and yet you can blow through bone. Um, with a heavy arrow. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, yes. That's a good one. As far as the standard diameter, honestly, there's no bad ones just because that, that point, the inserts and components don't really matter as much anymore. And it's just like, get a good quality shaft. But again, I wouldn't really recommend those for elk because it's going to be hard to build a heavy arrow with that. Um, unless you do some crazy FOC arrow, which I won't get started on. You don't need FOC. FOC actually hurts you in the wind, but uh, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of arrows. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to stop myself from going anymore. <laughs> Maybe we, we talk broadhead because I think that's the other critical part that goes with the arrow. Mm -hmm. um, on this one too, I'm pretty opinionated because I've shot mechanical, I've shot fixed. I don't really see a world where you should be shooting a mechanical broadhead for elk over fixed unless you're really bad at bow tuning or you don't plan on tuning. And even then... You still need to tune mechanical broadheads. It's a big lie that they, they get away with it. So you're still going to have problems with flight. But if you're just not going to tune, you don't know how to or don't have time, maybe use mechanical. I mean, you can only use it in a few states, Colorado, for example, and not in Idaho. Um, but that's just my, that's my like number one thing is just stick with a fixed blade. Um, my other thing for these and you know, hopefully guys, if they're listening to this, this isn't one of the first episodes, they can see the methodology and the amount of time I spend researching and testing these things myself. I'm not just, you know, pining from a place of no experience. I've only been doing this six years, but I've spent countless, countless hours working on this stuff and testing. I've probably tested over 20 broadheads at this point and researched a lot more. But the other thing I think is most important for these is penetration, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you... I understand with deer because they're thin skins, you know, a lot of the time, even with the light arrow, you can go through them. You know, it, there's so much excess energy and you're on a place where you might have a food plot that's 400 yards wide and it'll jump your neighbor's fence. Everything you want to do is drop it in a hundred yards. I still don't think extra width does too much for you, but I understand why guys chase that for elk. It's don't chase width. Just don't. Um, reason being is accuracy right? Like at, a, at the end of the day, broadhead accuracy is everything. And the wider you make that broadhead, the more steering force, like a rudder on the front of that arrow it's got, 
it'll never be as accurate as a small one. But then equally as important, if it's a small broadhead, it's going to penetrate like crazy. Uh, and that means it's going to go through both sides. So what would kill me is if guys are going for a one and a fourth inch broadhead versus a one and an eighth, which is kind of the standard elk one or one and a 16th. Uh, and you get that extra eighth of an inch, whoop-de-doo, but you don't go all the way through the elk. So now you've cut you know, this tiny little eighth of an inch extra serration, but you don't have another hole on the other side. So you're not going to get nearly the blood trail. It's going to take, you, in my experience, far, far longer time to die or bleed out um, just because you got that extra eighth inch of cut, which is almost never going to put you into something that matters if the center of that broadhead's off anyway. And okay. it probably, guess what? If you add another eighth of an inch, you know, another eighth of an inch, you might be two inches off because your boat isn't tuned well, right? <laughs> like there's just, I just don't see any upside, any mm -hmm. upside to going there. I've, again, this used to be something I would be tiptoe around. It used to be something I was like, oh, everyone has different opinions. Now I'm just like, I don't, I don't buy it. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can get your boat attuned, amazing. And you're a guy that's got more experience than me and you can drop you know, broadheads on a dime at 80 yards with a one and a fourth. Awesome. Go for it. But 99.5% mm -hmm. of people aren't doing that. Right. So the uh, trade-off or like the, it may not be worth it for most people. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so that's kind of the width of the broadhead. The other thing that's super important for elk is the way it's designed. Right. Um, so two pieces of that one is strength. Like it's gotta be a strong broadhead. Basically all, all I'll say there is use one that's proven. Use one that people have been using for multiple years and say, Hey, this is solid. That's just, that's all there is to it. There's no other way for you to know. Uh, that's easy, right? Unless you've got a, a mechanical engineering and finite materials analysis software um, test rig. So probably not going to happen. Um, so you've got, you've got that, right? And then the other, um, the other bit to penetration is the blade angle. So people really, really don't think about this one. Um, there's a bunch of different blade layouts. There's two blades, two blades and bleeders, three blades, four blades. But really, if you look at the front of that blade, the closer that blade angle is to the uh, parallel to the shaft versus 90 degrees to the shaft, the better it's going to penetrate. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So kind of relaxed blade angle. Yeah. So it'll, it doesn't, it doesn't, how do I say it? It's like physics, right? It, it doesn't, uh, it slides in easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, you know, when people cut, one of the things you'll see amateur people with a knife doing is they push that knife. They take that knife, right. they hold it in their hand and they push it straight away from their body. That is the single worst way to do it. Blades are designed to cut by sliding. Right. So if like you want to cut something, yes, yeah, slicing, you pull the blade across it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a, a really exaggerated example of a 90 degree blade angle versus an almost zero degree blade angle, pushing it right. into something versus pulling it across. And so mm -hmm. if the more those blades are, uh, uh, you know, with that arrow, the less they're going to have a difficulty cutting through something. So mm -hmm. really laid black back blade. This is really hard to talk about on a podcast, but <laughs> You'll see some of these two inch wide white tail blades where the blades are sitting almost 90 degrees to where the arrow is going. They're just like sticking straight out the sides. Yeah. That thing is going to just die when it, <laughs> when it hits a, uh, an animal, which is fine for a light skinned deer, but for an elk, not so right. much. It's like swinging an axe 
and hitting something versus like a dagger, just like, yeah, just swoop, just right into slicing it. like a spear or something. Yeah. 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 And I've, I've talked to guys that have shot, heck, we just, we talked to Paul elk nut he shot over 200 elk and he's using a Viper trick, right? Which is the same design that iron will day six kind of look like it's that two blades with bleeders, mm-hmm. very relaxed blade angle. That's just kind of the elk broadhead. Right. Um, and so you know, as you talk to guys that are more and more experienced, you see they're all kind of using something like that versus this, you know, extra wide cut, really steep, crazy. That just doesn't work. Um, so practical recommendations, you know, I've shot the day six Evos. I love them. They're staying, they're uh, S30Vs. They don't rust. They've got a great edge. Uh, Iron wheel broadheads are fantastic. You hear that from a lot of people downsides. They can't rust. Um, they're super, both of those are super stinking expensive, right? They're 90 to hundred bucks per three. Mm-hmm. Say the best value one on the market. I've pretty rare. I just say one thing, but the slick trick Viper trick, uh, specifically the pro series, which is stainless steel. You use the non-pro series. They're totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Paul used. That's what tons of guys used. I used that on my first two elk. That's like a $40 for three or four kind of thing. And that's a great option because mm-hmm. it's super relaxed, right? It's a great, uh, great, just kind of mass market one. Budget broadheads, I don't really believe in budget broadheads. <laughs> I don't really think you should be skimping there. Uh, skimp yeah. on your arrow, skimp on your bow, skimp on everything else, but put a good thing on the end of it. Because when you go through a year of research and a few thousand dollars worth of effort and you send something through the air, you want something good on the end. Mm-hmm. So anyway, is that coming off crazy? Do my sound creature over here, Josh? Just just ranting about things no i think it it illustrates just how much it's like the tip of the iceberg of how much research time uh and effort baxter has put into this stuff so if you want to like go through the deep dive and like completely nerd out i'll link the the blogs in the description but basically like for someone like me new hunter uh coming in i was like all right shoot a heavy arrow and then i was depending on how much money you got, just get the slick trick by for tricks or get the day snakes or iron wheels. Yeah. You can read all that why in the article, but uh, those would probably be our recommendations. Yeah. It's pretty funny. If you put all three of those broadheads next to each other, they look almost identical. Hmm. It's the exact same design. It's just slightly more advanced materials. And uh, you know, there's a reason they've kind of centralized on that design for elk hunting. Interesting. Uh, not saying that, you know, by their honorable mentions, quote unquote, like QA Exodus, the RMS gear cutthroat, the VPA three blades. There's there's other heads, muzzies that have been shooting elk for years and years and years. Um, and they're great. I'm not saying they're not, I, but I will say these are better. <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. if you just use something people have been using for a while, um, elk's not the area to experiment. Um, yeah, so that's that. Uh we got through arrows. We made it. <laughs> we got through that. arrows and it was less than an hour. That is a record. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, maybe we hit boots next. Cause I think other than like, if everyone's like, well, what's one piece of non-archery gear that's the most important? Is it your pack? Is it your, this, is it that? I'm like, dude, it's your boots. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Definitely. I think 100%. I shared this in the last year episode, but someone wise once told me two investments that you have to like you should spend good money on is uh shoes and your bed because you spend all night in the bed and all day in the shoes so man words of wisdom that's not even hunting (laughs) wisdom either right yeah Uh, so true like i think 
I think that's the most important thing um, in elk hunting. It's dial in your boots beforehand. Um, and when it comes down to it, like if there's one thing I tell people about boots, it's fit, 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 right? In real estate, it's location, 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 and boots, it's fit, fit, fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, this this one comes from years and years of doing the Ironman and triathlon stuff and running and just learning how much damage I could do to my foot and my body if I didn't have something that was properly fit uh, for the foot. So people have totally different types. Um, do you pronate? Do you have a weak foot, high arch? Do you have narrow feet? Do you have low volume feet, high volume feet? Know thy foot is basically my <laughs> advantage. And if you don't know thy foot, go to a place that can know your foot. Um, Lathrop and Sons is one of the only people I know of that specializes in hunting ones. Do not go to a big box store. Do not go to a Cabela's or whatever, because the guy in there's in high school or college or doesn't really care. Go somewhere that knows boots. Um, and have them even we talked about this in the the podcast for this one but go to a running store go buy a pair of running shoes um and they will tell you everything about your foot most of them have gait analysis they'll have a machine that can scan it and if you know that then you can know it enough to go buy your own boots online but you gotta go somewhere or you gotta know your own foot because um, that's everything so you know, with that in mind, I think the next thing is it's got to fit you well, right? For example, I have a narrow foot and I pronate. So I need a stiffer boot and I need a boot that has a narrower fit. The La Sportiva Trangos are money for that. Very stiff. Um, as far as stiffness, there's kind of three levels. There's five levels overall. But there's only really three that you'd matter for, um, for elk hunting. There's like your standard running shoe you know, flexibility, just complete, no support. You don't ever going to never want to use that for elk hunting. There's kind of like a hybrid boot boots that people use for light hiking, where these mm-hmm. are a lot of the ones you'll see at REI, right? These are the ultra lightweight ones. If you have a super strong foot and you're not going to do aggressive terrain, you can get away with that. Then there's like a traditional backpacking boot, right? And this is the he- most heavy duty ones you're going to see at REI. Um, this is a good all around one. This is what you got, right? You have the Solomons. Yep. The yep. Solomon, is it the uh, GTX? No, the Quest. I think, I think I have the Quest. The, yep, the Quest 4D3 GTX. There's always some new version of it, but that's a great bang per buck. That's actually one of a Rex for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good one if you've got a moderately strong foot and you're not going to do hyper aggressive terrain, you know, where you have a super strong foot and you want to do everything. Um, and then there's one more level up from that, which is like a hybrid mountaineering boot, which is what I'm using, or three-season mountaineering boot is what it's called. Um, and that's for people that have weak feet. You're doing very nasty stuff. You're truly going up, you know, 45-degree uh, surfaces with a boot on, uh, with a backpack on, right? You noticed that last year. Remember, we were side-hilling, and you're like, wow, dude, you're just like cutting into the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially in like the softer terrain where like, this, I think you mentioned like the softer the terrain, the stiffer the boot, right? Yep. It's, it's better. Totally. Yeah, so yeah, yours was just cutting and just creating edges like in the mountain where I was, my boot was just a little too soft. So it was kind of bending a little too much into the mountain and not getting yep. as much traction. Yeah. And the inverse of that is that when I'm on, like I can get blisters from my boots if I'm just walking down a hard pack trail. Right. Because right. they're so stinking stiff, right? If you notice like you just said, the hardest surface is concrete. You wear the flimsiest shoes, running shoes. Mm-hmm. And then the softest surfaces, ice and you know, snow, stuff that's completely got no support. You use almost rigid soles. Right. Mountaineering. So it's 
there's no perfect boot. No boot will do everything well. It's about finding that compromise that works for your foot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of it. The, other, the only other thing I'll say is like, your weight is really important, really important. People don't realize, you know, I was screwing around here hunting turkeys and I switched between a pair of um, La Sportivas, you know, that the Trangos, which are moderately heavy, heavy mountaineering boots. Um, I have a pair of Salewas and a pair of Solomons that are like medium and then ultralight kind of boots. So like I have basically category four, three, and two. Uh, and it is a very noticeable difference when you go up and down and the, the, all the ones I have are very light for their category too. Uh, what people don't think of, it's like biking. They always say that extra gram on the outside of your wheel is the most important one. It's those boots, you lift them and set them down multiple thousands of times every hour, right? Mm-hmm. And so another pound that you're lifting and setting down at the very end, you know, it's leverage, right? The longer the rod, the more leverage, the very, very tip of your foot, that's tough. It's real tough. And so, right. you know, really, really avoiding super heavy boots. Um, the Trangos is about as heavy as I'd want to go these days. Uh, and, oh man, should I go on my rant against leather boots? Uh, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you can get away with leather boots. This one's not critical, but I just hate them. I hate them. I hate them. They don't breathe well. They wet out. That means they get they get moisture in them and they do not dry. So that means your waterproof layer doesn't work. They don't breathe. So your feet get clammy, which means you get blisters. They shrink and expand, right? In the morning, they're tight. In the, the middle of the day, they get loose and you have to retighten them. Uh, they require a ton of maintenance. They're stinking heavy. Some of these boots that everyone recommends for elk hunting are like four pounds for a set, man. They're insane. They're effectively ankle weights. They're effectively ankle weights. (laughs) And yet they're still, when everyone talks about elk boots, they're one of the number, I'm not going to name names just to be mean, but people, these giant eight or 10 inch high full leather boots. I mean, you are, you are handicapping yourself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You legitimately will hike a mile or two less than someone that's got lighter boots on every day. Um, so I've got some strong opinions today, don't I, Josh? Uh, yeah, so I think that's an important one. For waterproofing, just get Gore-Tex. Like, you want something that works. So, uh, yeah, I've never owned waterproof boots before, and so these are my first, and it's awesome. I hate when my feet get wet. Um, and then you gave me a good tip, which is as soon as you buy them, just put a couple like dumbbells in them and put them in the bathtub, put some water and just like leave them in there for an hour or two and just make sure they're actually waterproof. And, yep. uh, they were all the way up. Like I was surprised too. Like the water goes over the tongue and everything and doesn't even get in there. So yeah, cool. no, that's an absolute must do that. Most guys don't, uh, especially have leather boots. Cause like, I don't want to get them soaked, but, uh, the reason being is Gore-Tex offers a warranty. If you have a Gore-Tex boot, and all the manufacturers usually have like a 30-day warranty at the bare minimum. But if you buy these boots in April and then you go to elk season and they get wet or there's a leak, you're hosed, right? Like you are really hosed because you're going to spend the whole week. You definitely don't want to go buy a new pair of boots you haven't broken in. That's the worst possible outcome. Um, so yeah, just put them in the bathtub, rip, put the water level up to right where the you can tell where the water can get in as high as it can go and just let them sit there. And if you can feel moisture in the boot after an hour or two, then send them back get another mm-hmm. pair um yeah and then socks i mean i think the sock system is really important to get a really good quality pair of merino or synthetic i'm a big fan of merino because it doesn't stink <laughs> as much mm-hmm. like 
and then a liner sock. That's my number one hack for boots. Get a liner sock. Yeah, they so, prevent blisters like no other. Like nothing else you can do. Nothing else you can do can stop blisters like a liner sock because it allows your foot to slide inside the sock. Mm-hmm. So if there is like a rubbing or a spot, it doesn't transfer that to your foot. Yeah, so it allows it's like sock two, to sock. Yeah, it lets the two socks kind of slip on each other. Mm-hmm. Instead of one sock just on your skin. And, and that's it's that rubbing back and forth, that friction that creates that blister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of all. All my advice on boots. Is there anything else I'm missing, Josh? I think that's kind of it. I think that's good. I think for the people who want to deep dive, go to the blog. And then if you want to just take a few actions now, uh, if you don't know your foot, just go to, uh, like Baxter said, any like higher end running shoe store, just look up in your local area. They usually will like, you run on a treadmill and they'll record it. You can step on these things. They'll tell you about your arch. So at least you can go learn your foot there. You don't even have to go buy a pair of shoes, but just learn them and then go get a boot. Uh, that fits totally. your shoes. Yeah. Um, we have some recs up there, you know, for different types of feet. It generally, like German brands tend to be wider, the Loas of the world, right? Uh, Italian brands, Scarpas tend to run tighter. Uh, Crispies are somewhere in the middle. Like there's, so Solomon Quest 40s you had are great. Um, Loa Renegades, if you're going to go leather, Crispy Wyoming's. I love the Lost Sportiva Trango Cubes. Scarpa Chameau's, the Thor 2 from Crispy's are great. Like there's some, yeah, throw a few that are like known killers that are good starting places if you're uh, if you're looking for for boots. Mm-hmm. You know your foot. Yeah. Cool. So cool. that's boots. Um, next is tents or shelters. Yeah. Shelters basically would be the right way to say it because I think a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys look at this and go, uh, they look at their mentor. They look at mentors to people they look up to and go, "Oh, that guy's using a." Um, oh, my brain is really working today. Bivy. Josh. A bivy, right? He's using a bivy, or he's using a floorless shelter like a tarp, and like, oh, that sounds great. Um, and this is probably the number one mistake guys make in the backcountry is just not having a good shelter. The rationale for that is that the, if you have a good shelter, you can stay out hunting. You can stay warm. So A, you're getting better sleep. B, you're comfort, comfortable and safe. So if a big storm comes in, which trust me happens almost every year, even if you go for a week, big storm comes in, you don't have to hike in or hike out. So just the choice of shelter you make can make or break at least a day of your elk hunt, if not more, because you're not tired and beat up. Um, so it's really important to kind of choose the right level of shelter for where you're going and what you're doing. Um, we talk about the different types a little bit. There's essentially four different types, which are the uh, like a fully enclosed tent, which is what you m- might see on typical, uh, like just a typical backpacking tent. There's really two variants of that, though. There's a single wall and a double wall. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's a floorless shelter, right? Something that doesn't have a floor. It's a tent, a tarp, a teepee, you know, anything that just doesn't have material that separates you from the ground or like fully encloses you. Mm-hmm. There's bivy sacks, which are just literally a sack that's waterproof generally. Um, then there's hammocks, right? Uh, <laughs> and then there's, you know, there's wall tents, camping tents, base camps, that sort of stuff, but that's not for backpacking, right? We're kind of talking backpacking shelters here. Um, but a hammock that's <laughs> cold. That's all I can say about a hammock. It's stinking <laughs> cold. Um, there's okay. no insulation on the bottom. <laughs> we'll just leave that one there. I've, I've used hammocks to do a lot of summer backpacking. And even then it's a great way to die. 
<laughs> because you're you compress the insulation at the bottom of your sleeping bag when you lay on it and then you're that part of your body is the one that's off the ground now so you have basically an area of your body with zero insulation <laughs> and a nice cold breeze uh, so it works but only in really really unique situations or if you really really carry a bunch of other heavy difficult gear to make it work um so I'm not, don't recommend a hammock for people unless they're standing there and they're like, oh, I've used a hammock and I know how to do it. Great. Do your thing. Um, baby sacks. That's another really tough one. Like if you're going to go that route, try it at home first. It's insanely claustrophobic. It's, uh, it's no room for your gear storage. So everything outside will get dew on it, get wet, which is really bad for a lot of things. Uh, it doesn't work when it's raining, right? You're going to get all your junk wet again your livable space you're not going to sleep well i mean it's if you are again a guy that's listening to this podcast like a bit backpacking like me 20 30 years already and who are you dude to be telling me this then yeah can work for you but for most people not so much Mm -hmm. i've actually never slept in a bivy or a hammock and i have a feeling that i want to (laughs) i've done bivies on mountaineering trips and hammocks backpacking and they're both they both have their place right? Emergencies, right? Is really where I would think of bivvies, but it's not my, my typical, typical one. I also would love to see, I call them bear sausages, both of them, uh, you know, hammocks (laughs) or, uh, or bivvies because they both look like a nice big sausage. (laughs) Uh, So take that, take that with a (laughs) grain of salt. Um, so now we're into the, the floorless shelters, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and we're, we're going, just got to go fast through this. My basic thing against recommending a floorless shelter for anyone who doesn't have a lot of backpacking experience is that you don't really have predator or weather protection, right? The, the water can leak underneath the edge of the tent, which can get you wet, which is a really big problem, right? Your, uh, your sleeping pad is now directly on the ground so it can pop. Um, if it doesn't pop, you have to put some, bring some other thing that's heavy. So why don't you just bring a tent anyway? There's not as much living space because the walls are almost always very slanted because they don't have something to support you. They really do limit your camp locations, which is one of the biggest things with shelters, right? Your shelter style should match your hunting style. Same with your boots, same with all your stuff. But if you're, for example, trying to go really high up on a ridge, if you get to a spot that's got a the one area in the trees, but it has a water, like a depression in it, guess what? All the water is going to fill there, right? And you see that a lot because the only reason a tree isn't is an area that might not be perfect for it to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't hold up to super strong winds. So again, if you're camping up high, like we talk about later, that can get blown over pretty easy. You've got to bring a ton of stakes and lines to get these things set up. So it's almost as heavy as a tent anyway. Um, and then you get condensation, right? It's single wall construction. Almost all those things, all of them are just by, by the way they're designed. Uh, so you're going to get condensation on the inside of the tent and usually that runs onto you. So that's my little rant against floorless shelters. There are huge upsides to them. They're super light, they're tiny, um, and they're generally lower price. So that's what baits a lot of guys into using them that shouldn't. Um, but again, if you're very confident, you're backpacking, you've been outdoors for five to 10, 15 years. I imagine you're listening to this with a grain of salt already, but that's a decent solution. I've used them a lot. And, you know, even though I've done back, I've been backpacking for almost 30 years now. Um, I still choose a double wall tent and that's like the gold standard of, uh, of elk hunting. And Josh, you're using a double wall, right? Yep. Got your, well, I used to use, yeah, double wall. And then I got a, a one person, one from you, which is awesome. The North face one. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
I'm spending a ton of time on this, but I think this is the most important thing with tents, right? It's, it's just that. Um, is that those, so a double wall tent is like a mesh interior tent and then it has a rain fly, right? A single wall tent is just everything is one. I'm not a huge fan of the single wall tents because again, you get a ton of condensation, right? They tend to be pretty lightweight and thin. They don't usually have poles. So you got to bring things to stake them out, which makes them just as heavy as double walls anyway. Uh, you have to look at the entire system when you look at a tent because it's really easy to be like, oh, a tent's a pound and then a double wall tent's two pounds. You're like, well, how about all the lines? How about all the stakes? How about the extra thing you have to put on the floor so you don't puncture your sleeping pad, right? That's, we're now talking two and a half pounds, right? Mm -hmm. um, so why well, I love double wall tents? They work in all conditions, tons of weather protection, no bugs or predators. Even you know, those two walls give you a lot of perceived safety, even if it's not as thick as you might think, right? Mm -hmm. No bears sticking its head in the side of your tarp <laughs> at two in the morning. So you're just going to sleep better for most guys that are relatively new to elk hunting, which is something you cannot overrate, right? If you're thinking about a bear and you get two hours less sleep a night, one in the morning, one in the evening, that's a huge waste. Carry that extra pound. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then, yeah. Keep going. I was just going to say, I've been camping since I was a kid, um, but I've only been backpacking for about four years. All I've used, I think, are double walls and they're just super comfortable. Like there's just nothing wrong with them. I, except I guess they're a little heavier, but like you said, mm -hmm. like totally worth its weight in gold because of sleep quality. Yeah. And almost all the double wall ones now can also be pitched as a single wall. So you can just pitch the rain fly and poles oh, yeah. and then mm -hmm. put a ground tarp on the ground. So you can actually use it as a single wall if you really want to. Right. Um, and so that's why I'm almost always going to recommend that for, for 80, 90% of folks. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we could probably leave it there. I think you got to think about what type of tent freestanding, you know, or unsupported, like our semi freestanding where you need to stake it out. That just means you have to really think about your campsite because if it's semi freestanding or freestanding, you got to be able to stake it into the ground. You can't just camp on rocks. Right. Um, number of people just good for people to know that manufacturers are very optimistic about this number. <laughs> so try one out before you, you do it. Um, there's a ton of other things they put out there to think about, but um, yeah, bucket bottom, two wall tent. That's hard to screw that one up. And they're so stinking light these days. I think my, my one with stakes, the big Agnes one I'm rocking, the big, the tiger wall, UL one, or sorry, yeah, the fly Creek is like one pound and 10 ounces. Dang. It's unbelievably light. That's insanely light. <laughs> yeah. That, that my sleeping bag and my sleep mat. And they're all, you know me, I, I really, really care about my sleep quality. They're all like thick sleep pad, most durable version out there. Warmest one out there. Very warm sleeping bag. That tent, which is super windproof. All of that comes to under five pounds. Mm. Damn. That's, that is very, very light. Very, I wonder your pack is light. so light. Everything. I mean, just, full pack. You've seen it. My full pack without water and stuff is like twelve pounds. <laughs> it's stupid light. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Rex for that. The big Agnes tents. They're don't buy hunting tents. Like, there's really not a lot of other equipment is specifically for hunters, and it's better for hunters. Yeah, but, I remember. I remember yeah, asking you this. I uh, yeah. pulled up the the. I think I pulled up a Kuyu site like a long time ago. I was like, oh look, they got like this new tent coming out. Or I think First Light was doing a. Thing with nemo or something yeah and then the advice you gave me was 
they haven't been making them as long. So just like generally, these backpacking companies have been making them so long and continuously optimizing and updating. Yeah. So it's just that you'll get end up with better quality, yeah, better just, price too. Yeah, and there's just no features that make them better for hunting. Really, like the right, right. might be they're a little more extreme, like weather resistance, but mm. you can still find those tents. And you know, Big Agnes has been doing it for 30, 40, 50 years now, so they're they're it's pretty hard to beat them. I've tried, I've looked at everything else. Um, Big Agnes generally runs away with it. Tiger Wall of the Fly Creek, um, the Copper Spur UL uh, HVUL2. I have that for two people. Um, REI has some really good budget ones, the Half Dome is a really good one. I think you had that before my North Face tent I gave you, right? Uh, I used a Nemo actually before that. Nemo. I, I, okay. I got a, like an REI garage sale, hundred bucks, two person tent, super comfy, just heavy. It was like five pounds, probably like four and a half, something like that. Yeah. Um, and Nemo's are good. You know, a lot of these other companies are good and you'll save maybe a hundred, 200 bucks on Big Agnes. So just pay for it and wait mm-hmm. the quality, right? Um, you know, the... So basically just an REI one, a big Agnes one, Hilleberg, if you really want to drop money and you want to have the most durable tent on the planet. Like if I'm in a massive storm on a ridge, I would, there's no other tent on the world I'd want to be in other than like a, a very strong Hilleberg, <laughs> but it's like 800 bucks. Dang. Versus big Agnes is like four or 500. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Those are good ones. Mm-hmm. All right. We're, we're moving through it, Josh. Uh, what else, man? Two more things, sleeping bag and food. I think sleeping bag, we're going to go pretty quick. Um, I mean, you you talk about like quilts versus sleeping bags. You've mentioned how like most people, like maybe 90% will just do better in a sleeping bag because it just gets a little cold, like especially at the end of the season. Yeah. Um, You can go into all the insulation, things like that. I think, yeah. should we go into all that or should we just give them the, the recs or what? I think just go recs and just go quick because this one's not as big as the others. Basically, like the tarps, people get baited into the quilts like we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Temp ratings and sleeping bags and quilts are completely off. They use an EN rating system, which doesn't match real world. Go look at the article. I go through that whole thing. Oh, yeah. But it's about survivability, right? Not comfort. Not survivability, not comfort, right? So I would always say that your quilt rating has to be at least 10 degrees lower than your sleeping bag rating. Right. If you do that, they're almost the same weight. So why in the hell are you using a quilt? Mm. Um, again, if you're someone that's been doing this for 10 years and you're comfortable, I'm not, not down talking your choice. We're just more talking like that. The general person that wants to go backpack. And I use a sleeping bag. I've been backpacking 30 years, right? Um, yeah. It's funny, the survivability thing. So it's like, do you want to just survive the night or do you want to be comfortable? <laughs> you do not want to, quote, survive a night in all country. I think for most yeah. people, this is a good thing to hit. Most people in September, all country, 9,000 feet, 8,000 feet plus, it's going to get down to 30. Your bag that's rated at 20 degrees, even that's going to get a little cold. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be totally warm, 10 degree bag. Yeah. And then you should know whether you you tend to run hot or run cold. I tend yeah. to run cold. Um, yep. But yeah, the, the Rex, the, maybe we start with the budget. I've actually had bought this one four, five years ago now, the mm-hmm. Kelty Cosmic 20. It's super cheap. It's like hundred bucks or 120, something like yeah. that. Um, but it does get cold for sure. And it's, it's a little heavy. 
Yeah. Um, and then I ended up upgrading last year to the one you recommended, the REI Magma 15. And I freaking, I love that sleeping bag. It's on the couch right now. I use it as a blanket when I'm traveling. <laughs> yeah, yep. I, I've actually slept in it for the last four days. Um, when my mom and brother were visiting, uh, here at my Airbnb. So <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's so light. It's, it's, it's super warm for me. Yeah. And then you mentioned well, that one too, before you move on that they, you can get the 30% off on Memorial yes. Day, 20% off, which is mm-hmm. amazing. They have an insanely good warranty. That one's value bang per buck. I don't think you can beat that one. Um, yeah. I had before I had my super Lux feathered friends. Yeah. So REI Magma 15 and there's always REI always does those member like 20% off any one item thing. So I actually ended up using, I think the 30% off or 20% off. So. Plus you get yeah. the 10% back at REI. Now it just yeah. sounds like REI commercial, but <laughs> not sponsored, not sponsored. <laughs> and then yours, the, which one do you have? Feathered Friends. Yeah, the Swallow. Feathered Friends or Western Mountaineering are really the best too. I go through why down is actually still the way to go in sleeping bags in the article. Um, you just can't get a synthetic one that's as light or warm as you need. Um, and yet another reason to have a double wall tent, right? If you have a down sleeping bag and it gets wet at night, you lose all insulation. So mm. the tarps could be, literally dangerous to your health. Um, and again, why all this stuff is a system and why it's so hard for me to talk about it quickly, because if you maybe save a ton of weight on your shelter by going floorless, well, now you've got to get a synthetic sleeping bag, which adds a pound or two. Uh, so even though on paper, it looks like a better decision, you can get away with an insanely light, you know, 10 denier fabric sleeping bag inside a double wall tent because there's nothing that's going to snag on it. It's not going to get rained on, right? Right. Yeah. So it's a system. Yeah. These things go together. Yeah. Um, so feathered friends is just money. That's amazing. Amazing bag. That's a, yeah. that's a lifetime bag. They'll even refill it for you for, you know, not much money. I mean, you're buying that bag and you're done for life, uh, which is why I got one. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Oh, actually you mentioned this thing about how long tents last versus sleeping bags versus pads. That might be yeah. good to cover. Ooh, pads. Wow. I almost missed that point. The, the pad is actually one of the most, if not the most important thing for warmth. People buy these super warm sleeping bags and then they buy pads that don't have a high R value, mm-hmm. which is the insulation value, which is actually now standardized. It didn't used to be, oh. uh, which is an update from last year. So Whoa. anyway, you can go listen to that article, but gotta buy a good insulated pad or your warm sleeping bag is pointless because like the hammock, you can press all the insulation on the bottom Mm-hmm. The bag and so if the thing you're touching it doesn't insulate you you're just <laughs> just bleeding heat out the bottom yeah this is an exaggeration um, but it's like sleeping on an ice block with a blanket on top of you <laughs> yeah this is also why we focus on sleeping bags your point is that a sleep good down sleeping bag will last 25 years plus easy mm. easy easy you treat it well and you wash it well so it's a really good investment you know tents they last a while but they're gonna go bad right? The coatings on them are going to crack and peel. Trust me, I have, <laughs> we've gone through four or five tents that just five to 10 years in, they just give up the ghost, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just part of the game. And then how uh, was the other one you're talking about, Josh? Pads. Oh, pads. Yeah. Eventually, no matter how thick or how solid it is, it's going to pop or it's going to break. So, you know, invest in the sleeping bag, spend the money there because that'll last forever. And then for storage, definitely don't store it packed up. Just, just let it fluff out and leave it in the closet. Um, and then another great tip is like, when you go set up your tent, just get the sleeping bag out and like open it up before you start cooking or anything. So Mm -hmm. give it time to just open up and really, really get warm because the way it keeps you warm is how much air it can trap between all the down. So you got to let it open up. 
uh, random, yeah. random couple of tips, but, uh, no, totally. Cause you could be, your sleeping bag could be 15 degrees warmer if you open it up an hour before you go to bed or mm-hmm. yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And last topic of, uh, or anything else on sleeping systems? I don't think so. I think that's it. Okay. Think oh wait, the R got, value, how high of an R value for, for the pad? I'm typically looking at five or more. Okay, cool. I mean, you could go three or four, but, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I don't. You th- let's say Just at least five or more, three point five <laughs> or four. I'd go for five. I use a I use a winter pad year round. Okay, because that helps me. You use an ultralight sleeping bag, so even though you only add oh. two or three ounces, it's a trade off again. You add two or three ounces to your pad, you can now use a sleeping bag that's ten degrees lighter, mm-hmm. which uh, drops you five or six ounces. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think it's it's always worth it to go for a high R value in a pad. Yeah, mine. I don't think mine's that high. Um, I get a little cold-ish still sometimes. Um, yeah. I, I just run really cold, and I'm skinny too, so I'm not like filling the bag when I'm yeah, lying yeah. in it. <laughs> well, that's the other but, cool uh, thing: feathered friends and you know, all the other sleeping bags are standard width, but feathered friends and Western Mountaineering can do they do ultra skinny bags, oh, which for skinnier people is great because you're not heating all this excess air. Right. And they do wide bags if you just got a big frame. So yeah. Anyway, I go on. I could go on. <laughs> we know. We know. Let's, let's stop. Let's, stop, let's, let's go stop. to. Should we go um, to food or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you've got a good arrow with a well-tuned bow, you've got a good clothing system, which we covered in the other article, and you've got a good sleep system and good like, boots and good boots. You are your money. That's that's all foundation. You need. Yeah, foundation. Everything else is great and important, and it helps and wonderful. But you know, like water filtration, for example. Yes, I got great suggestions there, but like, you know what? If you have something that filters water, you're going to drink. You're fine. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. That's kind of the story of all backpacking gear. It's, mm-hmm. uh, if you go crazy like me, you can optimize to the nth degree. But if you got those big things, that's it. And then food. Yeah. Food is really, really important. So we'll wrap that up and you know, another 10 minutes and we'll call it, right? Yeah. I, I, and one thing really quick on food is... Uh, I hope I'm not stealing your punchline, but no, you how said, about you do this one, Josh? I've been talking. So long. <laughs> cool. I will do this one. And then if you got anything to interject, let me know. Um, but when you said food is mood, oh my gosh, it makes it just, that is, I think that's the whole punchline around this. Well, the, obviously energy and like, he, like healing the muscles with protein, blah, 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 but for mood as well, like I really like to pack something uh, like a variety of different foods in terms of flavor and texture. So crunchy stuff, salty stuff, candy. I eat a lot of candy, which is probably different for yeah, you. That's but um, like last year I was exhausted when we were hunting and to break out a little bit candy, bam, you're like fresh. And that's good for hunting. I mean, you need to have a good mood so it'll make you push harder. But yeah. um, I'll hit the big headlines uh, in the article. The first is about how many calories you need to intake. Um mm-hmm. And you recommend at least 3000 calories a day, just because you're burning a lot of energy out there. I'm pretty sure just breathing when you're out there at higher elevation takes burns way more calories than just breathing normally at home. If you don't live oh, yeah. somewhere high. Yep. Um, it's about 3000 calories. Uh, one tip you do is you pack all 3000 calories in these gallon Ziploc bags. So it's like one day's worth of food. So that's your yeah. bar, whatever stuff you got in there. Yeah. Gosh, it saves you so much time when you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do, let me jump in and do my one thing here. Like you're again, the whole theme of this series, right. Is spend as much possible time hunting elk and sorting and throwing stuff in bags and packing your food in the back country actually takes an hour or two. Mm-hmm. That's brutal. That's a waste of life. So I actually, I just put all this stuff 
in Ziploc bags. You've got a day's worth of food in each Ziploc. I count the calories, drop it in there. And it's like, when I come back to the car to go to on my next little two to three day backpacking trip, I grab three bags and I'm out of there in you know five minutes versus guys are spending two or three hours of daylight hunting time packing their freaking food. So anyway, mm-hmm. over the just course one of those, a hunt, right? Yeah. Over the course of a hunt, if not more, I mean, I've seen guys literally spend two hours every time they come in. Um, so did, you know, when you step back, did you want to spend more, you know, <laughs> if you do two or three trips, do you want to spend a half day packing food of your seven day elk trip? <laughs> all right. Rant over. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So 3000 calories a day, pre-pack all that, um, sugar, people are scared of sugar, but when you're, when your heart rate is in those higher, you know, zone three, especially four or five, when you're hunting, maybe not all the time it's like that, but sometimes you're going uphill, like you're burning mm-hmm. a lot of sugar. So it's okay to eat sugar out there. Um, in those situations, I think, I mean, if you're, I'm optimizing for performance when I'm out there, not necessarily for health, but it's not like I eat this stuff every day. Um, you meant you talk about when you eat, uh, I'm on the same boat as you. I don't really like any, even at home, actually in my daily life, I'm not the kind of person who likes to eat like three big meals in a day. I just get mm-hmm. food coma really bad. I get tired. I get my men- I get this mental fog. So I like to graze, as you like to say, like eat four or five, seven smaller meals, whatever it is, just all day, every day. Uh, and in the marathon world, like long distance endurance people, I think they talk about consuming hundred or 200 calories per hour just to keep continuously fuel yourself. Mm. Cause it takes time for your body to break down that food and turn it into actually usable, like glucose or whatever energy. Totally. Um, did I hit that right? I might not yeah. be exactly scientific, yeah. but it's like your body can only do so much. And I mean, it's sugar, basically just sugar is actually good when you're working out. It's bad every time else, but like when you're working out, it's, it's the food, your brain and the rest of your body uses, they convert everything else into it. And so guys, it, cause you've been taught your entire life, sugar stinks, right? And it is, it's really bad for you when you're just sitting still. Um, but when you're exercising, it's really, really important. Um, and I learned that from you know, that whole article on like how to train for the Ironman, but it was mind blowing how much of a difference, a good amount of sugar consistently going into your body makes in how hard you can work out so yeah don't avoid sugar basically yeah and, and you mentioned the uh, like ratio of like sugar to protein being like a mm-hmm. three to one or a four to one i know you love your chocolate milk because it's that perfect ratio after a workout um, yeah so, yeah <laughs> that's really important for recovery um and especially especially if you're gonna work out within 24 hours which describes every single time you're you're working out and there's a whole there's a massive amount of science on this for triathletes and trust me i've read it all and when you're working out two times a day over two to four hours, you know, a three hour bike in the morning and a two hour run in the evening, you have to eat a certain way. And turns out that's what you do when you're elk hunting, right? Like you're working out four to six hours a day. Um, so we go through all the details of that and how that works, but basically you want to eat a bunch of sugar while you're working out. And then you want to, whenever you finish or stop, you want to eat, you know, three to one or four to one protein to sugar or sorry, sugar to protein ratio. Right. Uh, instantly, because that's the perfect uh, amount that your body can uptake and repair very quickly. Because you have this, your cells, your mitochondria of your cells can only store so much glucose. And they are 200 enzymes that help them uptake that glucose are 200 to 300 times more effective in the 10 to 15 minutes after you exercise. Yeah. So this from our podcast, our original podcast, when we deep, did the deep dive in food. That is the one uh, like tip that I implement probably every day since then, like as soon as I get home from a run, 
boom, sugar and protein. I, I try to shoot for the three to one, but at least I get some sugar in and, uh, or else next day, what if I go on a run, I'm just like, I'm way less energetic. It's just the body absorbs. It's mind blowing. It really is mind blowing when you do it. Mm Your the workout the next day is like a completely different experience. Um, yeah, you have energy out the wazoo. So for all cunning, you know, when you're done with your massive hike for the day, or you drop in for dinner, don't spend 30 minutes heating up your meal and you know, like instantly eat something, you know, like a like a protein a bar. bar with yeah. a bunch of sugary stuff, you know, right away so that your body gets it in and mm-hmm. then you can cook dinner or something like that. So yeah. And then before we go into, I think I'll jump into the list of the well, actually, real quick, backpacking food versus groceries. I know oh, yeah. the pros and cons there are really interesting. Backpacking food, um, it's delicious, but it's really expensive. Yeah. Groceries, you can, most of the stuff you can just get from grocery stores. So for Baxter and I, I think we do something pretty similar. Mine are just like slightly on the less expensive end. But uh, <laughs> I get most of my food during the day. I eat grocery store stuff. I'm eating jerky, dried fruit, potato chips. Mm-hmm. I eat a bunch of those pro bars. I love those things. Um, yeah. Uh, this, the, the, uh, salami and crackers was a great tip, yeah. but they're so delicious Peanut butter and jelly for crying out loud. Just yeah. PB and J's, yeah. uh, granola, like instant stuff. So that's what I eat during the day. And then it's, I like what you do. And I just copied you, which is save one of those freeze dried meal for dinner. It's just like yeah. a lot of calories at the end of the day. Plus yeah. food is mood. Getting one hot meal is just so nice. It's so um, nice. So I like well, it's, the uh, pad yeah, thai. So. I love the pad thai and the beef stroganoff. Those are my two go-tos. Yeah, we need to do Rex here in a sec. But to, <laughs> to fully hit the grocery store thing, like backpacking food is insanely expensive. Like if you want to do an REI and plan your days, it's going to be like 50, 60 bucks a day. Mm-hmm. Like go to a steakhouse if you're going to spend $60. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't, don't spend it on that stuff. So they also have limited nutrition, right? They don't really have things that have good fiber. So if you want to be super blocked up, go buy backpacking <laughs> food, right? Yeah. And they don't really have a lot of options per se. They're few and far between, like you have to buy it online. And so if you're used to doing that and you run out of food or you bury your food or you lose it and you're in an area where it only has grocery stores, now you're hosed because you're not used to what you go buy and what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And then you also don't want to eat that food later most of the time. Like a lot of the stuff I'm eating when I'm backpacking, it's stuff that I would be comfortable eating sitting down every day. Mm. Uh, so that's my rant on grocery stores versus backpacking stores. Buy the majority of food from the, the grocery store. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's uh-huh. do the racks. Let's just, cause that's the, that's the best part of this entire thing. It's just yeah. like what food is great. Oh, one thing on that list from the grocery store, those Idahoan uh, freeze dried uh, mashed potatoes, potatoes dude yeah. they're so good and they're so, so light all you do is yeah. add hot water and then the tip you did was add in the uh the bacon bits that you normally like put on a yep. salad or something dude so good oh, i so ate a lot good. i ate a lot of yeah. mashed potatoes and bacon last year yep and that's a fantastic one it's like um couscous too those two in my mind are the two greatest starches for backpacking you can buy from a grocery store mm-hmm. because they both cook super fast and you can actually put them in your freeze-dried pouch with your other meal. So if you're like, oh, oh yeah, this freeze-dried right. Mountain House or Heather's Choice or Off-Grid or whatever it is has only this many calories, well, you just dump in a huge thing of Idaho and potatoes with it. Mm-hmm. And now you've got your extra 400 calories. It adds to the taste. It's a really good hack. Yeah. Uh, 
So that's a big one. Yeah, the couscous, the rices, the pastas, the instant stuff. Those are those are good options. Yeah, and then one note on dried fruit that you reminded me of is a benefit of that besides the sugar is the fiber. So that yep. way you're not pooping pebbles for yep. <laughs> the whole trip, um, which is a huge problem, huge huge problem <laughs> backpacking because you're way high altitude and you're and you're exerting yourself like crazy. Dehydration and constipation is, dude, that is a it's a real deal. <laughs> don't want to be carrying all that extra crap in your system. It's no, like no. extra weight. <laughs> yeah, literally. So yeah, I love dried fruit, man. Love yeah. it. Love it. I'm a uh, mangoes, especially. I mean, oh, so mangoes. good. So mm. good. Dried kiwis are delicious too. Yeah. Um, pineapples. Ooh. They taste good at altitude. We went to the science of that and why your taste buds, like why everybody likes ginger, mm-hmm. uh, ginger beer at altitude. It's crazy science, but we won't do that yeah. here. Uh, try, uh, nuts, good nuts, too, good source yeah. of fat because a lot of calories in there, protein, efficient. Um, uh, potato about, chips. This is my all time. Oh, yeah. This is the all time greatest. One point five ounces of potato chips has as much potassium as a banana. People um, have no clue. It's got salt, it's got carb, and it's got fat. It's got literally everything your body wants when it's working out. Mm-hmm. Worst food you could eat on a couch. Best food you could eat while you're working out. <laughs> And then you have an interesting uh, thing you do with this to save space is you crush them, not like into powder, but like at least it probably saves like it reduces that space of that potato bag down to like half of a Ziploc bag. So I get a Ziploc bag, I crush them, I dump them in there and yeah. um, then I can don't have to get my hands all greasy. I just shovel them in. Like I just tilt the bag up. Pour it in. Yeah. 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 It's freaking (laughs) so good. I'm I'm going to eat some for lunch. Uh, (laughs) Dude, I'm getting hungry now. Um, yeah. How about the freeze dry? Like, I know you got some some of your like really nice bomb ass, like really good. Um, yeah, ones. yeah. Like the Heather's choice. Heather's choice is good. Off grid is really good. Um, you have got my mountain house go tos. The mm-hmm. uh, the beef stroganoff's really good. Breakfast skillet, even for dinner, amazing. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, the other ones that are winners, but those two, almost everyone I've ever talked to is like. They're, yeah. they're all stars. Um, yeah, I'm a big pad thai guy. I like the spicy out there. Um, yeah, that one's so good. I yeah. But that's not. Is that peak nutrition? The pad thai or is no, that the pad thai backcountry pantry? I think backcountry pantry back, pad thai. Like that. yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. winner. That's like an all time that winner. So. Um, but like the chili mac biscuits, gravy, chicken dumplings, spaghetti. Those are other ones, but just depends if people like them or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, granola and milk and blueberries is an all star. That's a that's a winner. Yeah, you talked about the. The Thai curry for good to go foods is another really good one. Um, tastes good at altitude. Heather's Choice, some of, I love some of her stuff. It's super dense and it's really protein heavy. Mm-hmm. So it could be hard to pound in one sitting. Honestly, I like to split them with my wife or someone yeah. else and then have a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, Off grid food co makes some really good ones. Um, yeah, I've actually I mean, uh, tried p- some of peak refuel stuff and I really mm-hmm. like it too. The, um, yep. chicken Alfredo and their beef stroganoff is really good. That's and good they actually list. have a, bun- I think what's different about them is they make sure to add a lot of protein. So for me, yep. end of the day, it's got like 40, 50 grams of protein in that thing. Jeez. Um, yeah, it's a lot. So maybe not every day, but it, I like, I like how they taste too. Um, yeah. Well, the mountain house, the downside mountain house is it's not really super quality ingredients. Right. It's super salty. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, it can make a lot of water loaded. Yeah. A lot of water with that. And then just eat only one a day and the farts. Yeah. Glorious. But, uh, (laughs) how about bars? You have like some really good recommendations for bars here and you got all these like interesting ones that are pretty good. I remember looking in your pants. Yeah. Yeah. I keep a 
keep a supply of these year round because again they're things i like to eat so if i'm going out for a run or a mountain bike i'll, I'll do them um and these if i'm spending money on these things they better be good right because they're expensive and you mm-hmm. can also buy them i tend to buy them in bulk you know we waited zero trading post blew out the bobo's bars for example i just bought like four cases um bobo's bars one of my favorites it's like basically compressed sweetened oatmeal in a brick it's so good so tasty gotta get the lemon poppy seed that's like their the flavor Um, perfect bars they're really good they're dense they're not easy to eat but um or no sorry perfect bar yeah they're they're good for the outside the refrigerator for up to seven days we have to refrigerate them until then almost all the good bars are like that but hey it turns out an elk on seven days anyway no big deal they're phenomenal they taste like candy they taste like the inside of a reese's cup because they're like peanut butter and honey goodness Pro bars, really good. I stick with all the berry ones, like the chocolate and other stuff's a little funk. Um, they're very expensive, but like if you're truly looking for some good nutrition, that's a good one. Big fan of the RX bars as far as protein, super chewy, but if you can get past that, they're fantastic because it's all egg protein, which is the best protein you can get. Um, and then Justin's bars, the hazel or Justin's packets, I should say the hazelnut, the almond butter, the peanut butter. Just a really good way to eat those those nut butters. The hazelnut tastes like Nutella. It's freaking amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a good one. Um, Big Sur bars. I tried one of those lately, and they're so good. Um, big but they're Sur expensive. Bars. They're big. They're hard to come by. So I almost don't want to recommend that. Yeah, Mojo. Like the... bar. Yeah, oh, go. keep going. Sorry. Yeah, Mojo bars uh, and Kind bars. They're very mainstream. They're really good. They're by Cliff. I can't eat Cliff bars anymore. I've had enough. <laughs> I've eaten so many cliff bars. I just can't touch them. <laughs> so if you're like me, those are, those are good ones. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's most of them. Yeah. I, I haven't, I've tried some of the ones you mentioned. I really like the pro bars, especially the ones that are like all these extra like green powders and like mm-hmm. these different kinds of seeds and fruits in there. Uh, I just feel like cover some of your micronutrients. Um, that tip you gave about putting a pro bar or any bar in your pocket when you go to sleep and just wake up bam first thing breakfast just eat that yeah. bar it saves a lot of time and it keeps that bar from like getting super cold and like like yeah. breaking it's your rock hard when you're trying to eat it. yeah yeah so. well it's i'm not a big fan of cooking in the morning because you got to burn sleep hours and it's so much work and effort and it's noisy i'll cure you yada 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 right so i'm not a big fan oh rx or uh z bars they're technically kids bars they're phenomenal they have all in ingredients organic ingredients that taste so good i love those things i eat them by the bucket full um because you can get them at costco for example right 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 um i mean that's that's pretty much food maybe we hit a few little tips and then just call it but cool hydration i don't think you could ever under or overweight hydration like you just gotta drink like crazy i mean i drink i have a three liter bladder and i probably fill that thing at least once a day so i mean four or five liters a day you gotta hydrate like crazy when you're out there Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the Ziplocs, making sure you've got extra food in the truck because the worst thing possible is you just like cannot eat something out there and then you you have to eat it because it's the only thing you got. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, the last tip on this, the long-handled spoon. Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. Those yeah. spoons are expensive. Even the short ones are like eight, 
ten dollars and the long ones are probably like about the same i bought a short one a while ago and i just was like screw it i'm getting the long one because then your your knuckles get all like sauced up when you're trying to eat those backpacking meals so that's a good tip i don't carry a knife or a spoon well i carry my butchering knife for the elk right but i don't Mm. carry like a separate eating knife or spoon or spork or whatever i just have a long handled spoon that's the only utensil it's so good so got to get one of those. And then the last thing I'd say is make sure to cook the meals long, freeze dried stuff. Yeah. Because all the racks are for sea, um, sea, sea level. level. Right. And boiling water isn't as hot at that altitude. So you yeah. always add like one and a half. Because guys all the time are eating these chalky meals and like, what's wrong with Yeah, that? I've definitely bitten into some some crunchy, spongy chicken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But anyway, I think, I think that's pretty much gear. Like we've compressed a ton in there. If guys want the nitty gritty on like what range finder or what little, you know, piece they can go find that in the article. But mm-hmm. like, if I, if I just had this one and a half hour conversation with anyone going elk hunting, I'm going away and I'm like, I'm very comfortable. They're going to do have everything they, they need to be fine. Right. So. Cool. So we covered a lot there. Um, so yeah, have at it. <laughs> I'll link all the, uh, the deep dives in the episode description. If you want to go check them out. But uh, hopefully that gives you a good overview of like the big fundamental gear items that you need to prepare for elk season. Yep. And that's it. So, you know, we're going to do one more of these things um, on all the kind of the strategy and tactics bit. This is, we're moving super fast. Um, let us know if you guys like this or not. It just is a, it's a good way to kind of get it all compressed into one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will be back with a bunch of other cool episodes soon.